Book four, sections eleven through thirteen of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Politics by Aristotle. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book four, section eleven. We have now to inquire what is the best constitution for most states and the best life for most men, neither assuming a standard of virtue which is above ordinary persons, nor an education which is exceptionally favoured by nature and circumstances, nor yet an ideal state which is an aspiration only, but having regard to the life in which the majority are able to share, and to the form of government which states in general can attain. As to those aristocracies, as they are called, of which we were just now speaking, they either lie beyond the possibilities of the greater number of states, or they approximate to the so-called constitutional government, and therefore need no separate discussion. And, in fact, the conclusion at which we arrive respecting all these forms rests upon the same grounds. For if what was said in the ethics is true, that the happy life is the life according to virtue lived without impediment, and that virtue is a mean, then the life which is in a mean and in the mean attainable by every one, must be the best. And the same principles of virtue and vice are characteristic of cities and of constitutions, for the constitution is in a figure the life of the city. Now in all states there are three elements. One class is very rich, another very poor, and a third in a mean. It is admitted that moderation and the mean are best, and therefore it will clearly be best to possess the gifts of fortune in moderation. For in that condition of life men are most ready to follow rational principle. But he who greatly excels in beauty, strength, birth, or wealth, or on the other hand who is very poor, or very weak, or very much disgraced, finds it difficult to follow rational principle. Of these two, the one sort grow into violent and great criminals, the others into rogues and petty rascals, and two sorts of offences correspond to them, the one committed from violence, the other from roguery. Again, the middle class is least likely to shrink from rule, or to be overambitious for it, both of which are injuries to the state. Again, those who have too much of the goods of fortune, strength, wealth, friends, and the like, are neither willing nor able to submit to authority. The evil begins at home. For when they are boys, by reason of the luxury in which they are brought up, they never learn, even at school, the habit of obedience. On the other hand, the very poor, who are in the opposite extreme, are too degraded, so that the one class cannot obey, and can only rule despotically, the other knows not how to command, and must be ruled like slaves. Thus arises a city, not of freemen, but of masters and slaves, the one despising, the other envying and nothing can be more fatal to friendship and good-fellowship in states than this. For good-fellowship springs from friendship. When men are at enmity with one another, they would rather not even share the same path. But a city ought to be composed as far as possible of equals and similars, and these are generally the middle classes. Wherefore the city which is composed of middle-class citizens is necessarily best constituted in respect of the elements of which we say the fabric of the state naturally consists. And this is the class of citizens which is most secure in a state, for they do not, like the poor, covet their neighbour's goods, 
nor do others covet theirs, as the poor covet the goods of the rich. And as they neither plot against others, nor are themselves plotted against, they pass through life safely. Wisely then did Phocylidas pray, Many things are best in the mean, I desire to be of a middle condition in my city. Thus it is manifest that the best political community is formed by citizens of the middle class, and that those states are likely to be well administered in which the middle class is large and stronger if possible than both the other classes, or at any rate than either singly, for the addition of the middle class turns the scale, and prevents either of the extremes from being dominant. Great, then, is the good fortune of a state in which the citizens have a moderate and sufficient property, for where some possess much and the others nothing, there may arise an extreme democracy or a pure oligarchy, or a tyranny may grow out of either extreme, either out of the most rampant democracy or out of an oligarchy. But it is not so likely to arise out of the middle constitutions and those akin to them. I will explain the reason of this hereafter when I speak of the revolutions of states. The mean condition of states is clearly best, for no other is free from faction, and where the middle class is large there are least likely to be factions and dissensions. For a similar reason, large states are less liable to faction than small ones, because in them the middle class is large, whereas in small states it is easy to divide all the citizens into two classes who are either rich or poor, and to leave nothing in the middle. And democracies are safer and more permanent than oligarchies, because they have a middle class which is more numerous and has a greater share in the government. For when there is no middle class, and the poor greatly exceed in number, troubles arise, and the state soon comes to an end. A proof of the superiority of the middle class is that the best legislators have been of a middle condition. For example, Solon, as his own verses testify, and Lycurgus, for he was not a king, and Charondus, and almost all legislators. These considerations will help us to understand why most governments are either democratical or oligarchical. The reason is that the middle class is seldom numerous in them, and whichever party, whether the rich or the common people, transgresses the mean and predominates, draws the constitution its own way, and thus arises either oligarchy or democracy. There is another reason. The poor and the rich quarrel with one another, and whichever side gets the better, instead of establishing a just or popular government, regards political supremacy as the prize of victory, and the one party sets up a democracy, and the other an oligarchy. Further, both the parties which had the supremacy in Hellas looked only to the interests of their own form of government, and established in states the one democracies, and the other oligarchies. They thought of their own advantage, of the public not at all. For these reasons the middle form of government has rarely, if ever, existed, and among a very few only. One man alone, of all who ever ruled in Hellas, was induced to give this middle constitution to states. But it has now become a habit among the citizens of states not even to care about equality. All men are seeking for dominion, or, if conquered, are willing to submit. What, then, is the best form of government? and what makes it the best, is evident. And of other constitutions, since we say that there are many kinds of democracy and many of oligarchy, it is not difficult to see which has the first and which the second, or any other place in the order of excellence, now that we have determined which is the best. 
for that which is nearest to the best must of necessity be better, and that which is furthest from it worse, if we are judging absolutely and not relatively to given conditions. I say relatively to given conditions, since a particular government may be preferable, but another form may be better for some people. Section 12 we have now to consider what and what kind of government is suitable to what and what kind of man. I may begin by assuming, as a general principle common to all governments, that the portion of the state which desires the permanence of the constitution ought to be stronger than that which desires the reverse. Now every city is composed of quality and quantity. By quality I mean freedom, wealth, education, good birth, and by quantity superiority of numbers. Quality may exist in one of the classes which make up the state, and quantity in the other. For example, the meanly born may be more in number than the well-born, or the poor than the rich, yet they may not so much exceed in quantity as they fall short in quality, and therefore there must be comparison of quantity and quality. Where the number of the poor is more than proportioned to the wealth of the rich, there will naturally be a democracy varying in form with the sort of people who compose it in each case. If, for example, the husbandmen exceed in number, the first form of democracy will then arise. If the artisans and labouring class, the last, and so with the intermediate forms. But where the rich and the notables exceed in quality more than they fall short in quantity, there oligarchy arises, similarly assuming various forms according to the kind of superiority possessed by the oligarchs. The legislator should always include the middle class in his government. If he makes his laws oligarchical, to the middle class let him look. If he makes them democratical, he should equally by his laws try to attach this class to the state. There only can the government ever be stable where the middle class exceeds one or both of the others, and in that case there will be no fear that the rich will unite with the poor against the rulers, for neither of them will ever be willing to serve the other and if they look for some form of government more suitable to both, they will find none better than this, for the rich and the poor will never consent to rule in turn, because they mistrust one another. The arbiter is always the one trusted, and he who is in the middle is an arbiter. The more perfect the admixture of the political elements, the more lasting will be the constitution. Many even of those who desire to form aristocratical governments make a mistake, not only in giving too much power to the rich, but in attempting to overreach the people. There comes a time when out of a false good there arises a true evil, since the encroachments of the rich are more destructive to the constitution than those of the people. Section 13 The devices by which oligarchies deceive the people are five in number. They relate to 1. The assembly, 2. The magistracies, 3. The courts of law, 4. The use of arms. 5. Gymnastic exercises. 1. The assemblies are thrown open to all, but either the rich only are fined for non-attendance, or a much larger fine is inflicted upon them. 2. To the magistracies, those who are qualified by property cannot decline office upon oath, but the poor may. 3. In the law courts the rich, and the rich only, are fined if they do not serve the poor are let off with impunity, or, as in the laws of Carondas, a larger fine is inflicted on the rich, 
and a smaller one on the poor. In some states all citizens who have registered themselves are allowed to attend the assembly and to try causes, but if after registration they do not attend either in the assembly or at the courts, heavy fines are imposed upon them. The intention is that through fear of the fines they may avoid registering themselves, and then they cannot sit in the law courts or in the assembly. Concerning four, the possession of arms, and five, gymnastic exercises, they legislate in a similar spirit. For the poor are not obliged to have arms, but the rich are fined for not having them. And in like manner, no penalty is inflicted on the poor for non-attendance at the gymnasium, and consequently, having nothing to fear, they do not attend, whereas the rich are liable to a fine, and therefore they take care to attend. These are the devices of oligarchical legislators and in democracies they have counter-devices. They pay the poor for attending the assemblies and the law courts, and they inflict no penalty on the rich for non-attendance. It is obvious that he who would duly mix the two principles should combine the practice of both, and provide that the poor should be paid to attend, and the rich fined if they do not attend, for then all will take part. If there is no such combination, power will be in the hands of one party only." The government should be confined to those who carry arms. As to the property qualification, no absolute rule can be laid down, but we must see what is the highest qualification sufficiently comprehensive to secure that the number of those who have the rights of citizens exceeds the number of those excluded. Even if they have no share in office, the poor, provided only that they are not outraged or deprived of their property, will be quiet enough but to secure gentle treatment for the poor is not an easy thing, since the ruling class is not always humane. And in time of war the poor are apt to hesitate unless they are fed. When fed, they are willing enough to fight. In some states the government is vested not only in those who are actually serving, but also in those who have served. Among the Malians, for example, the governing body consisted of the latter, while the magistrates were chosen from those actually on service. And the earliest government which existed among the Hellenes, after the overthrow of the kingly power, grew up out of the warrior class, and was originally taken from the knights. For strength and superiority in war at that time depended on cavalry. Indeed, without discipline, infantry are useless, and in ancient times there was no military knowledge or tactics, and therefore the strength of armies lay in their cavalry. But when cities increased and the heavy armed grew in strength, more had a share in the government, and this is the reason why the states, which we call constitutional governments, have been hitherto called democracies. Ancient constitutions, as might be expected, were oligarchical and royal. Their population being small, they had no considerable middle class, the people were weak in numbers and organization, and were therefore more contented to be governed. I have explained why there are various forms of government, and why there are more than is generally supposed. For democracy, as well as other constitutions, has more than one form. Also, what their differences are, and whence they arise, and what is the best form of government, speaking generally, and to whom the various forms of government are best suited. All this has now been explained. End of Book 4, Sections 11 through 13